Hi, everybody. I'm Brenda from Alcoholic. Thank you very much. Um, you know, when I got here, nobody said she's a lovely lady. And uh, so that's a real treat. Um, I am a member of the Downtown Lakeland group. It meets, uh, our speakers meeting is on Thursday night at 8 o'clock. We have a discussion meeting at 8 on Sunday evening and a, a step study at 6.30 on Sunday. So if you folks are ever through Lakeland, Florida, you drop in and see us. We would love to have you. My, uh, my sobriety date is October 3rd, 1990. And I am a member in good standing in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what that means to me is that I do not drink. And I go to meetings and I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. And I sponsor people and everybody that I sponsor works with others. And uh, there's a lot of things that we need to do and a lot of things that, that get us better in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hear people say there are no musts here. There are some musts if we don't want to just sit here and not drink and be miserable. I, uh, I want to thank the committee. Uh, Charles came by with this beautiful basket of fruit a while ago. It's just gorgeous, and I understand that was quite an undertaking. Other people had their hands on that too, but it was very nice. And uh, we had a we had a nice dinner with the with the committee, and uh, we just we've just been treated so good since we got here. I'm I'm just thrilled to be here. We we had a nice drive up, and uh, God's been with us. He's watched after us. I I apologize. My sponsor was supposed to be here with you this weekend, and she's not been well, and so she. Uh, she asked them if they would let me come, and uh, she sent uh, she sent Jay a tape, and he called, and he said, "I think we can stand her." So, so I'm going to stand up here and uh, and try not to dishonor my sponsor, and tell you a little bit about what it was like and what happened and uh, what it's like now. I uh, I started drinking uh, like just about everybody else that I've ever met in. Uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was about 13, and uh, I uh, I was raised by a great aunt and uncle out on the West Coast in a very very strict environment, kind of an abusive environment, and I never uh, got out anywhere. We were uh, my older sister and I. We we spent our time pretty much in the backyard. And uh, when I was 13, I had occasion to go visit my father in another state. And my dad was practicing alcoholics. He wasn't home a whole lot, and I got out a lot. And uh, I don't know about everybody else, but, but that was a big deal for me to be out after dark and kind of climbing out the bedroom window. And, and I met some people uh, that were different than, than what I had known. And uh, I met a young man, and he gave me my first drink. And uh, it worked for me. I married him a couple of years later. <laughs> he... <laughs> Hey, uh, the drinking the drinking was was really really the kicker. The marriage didn't last too long, but the drinking hung on a long long time. Uh, we uh, I went back to California and I moved back and forth and we we communicated through the mails and over the phone and uh, and he joined the military and so I came to South Carolina and uh, we got married down at the at the Marine base the Marine Air Base at Beaufort. And that was a long time ago. Uh, I'm older than you might think. That was during the uh, during the Bay of Pigs, and my husband, being a Marine, he went to uh, to Cuba, 
And I was alone for the first time in my life. I had uh, an opportunity to pretty much make my own decisions, do what I wanted. Now, up until that time, of course, I was pretty young. I was 15. And uh, when you're 15, you can't drink every day. I drank every chance I got. Uh, I drank whenever it was available. But now it was really available to me, and nobody was around to tell me that I couldn't drink. And so I, uh, I got in it pretty, pretty heavy. And uh, when my husband came back, uh, he had his own problems and his own issues, and uh, I created a lot of havoc. My drinking was um, aberrant uh, from the very beginning. I acted out an awful lot uh, when, I was, when I was intoxicated, and back in those days the military did not put up with an awful lot, and I got him in a lot of trouble. And so my choices were to not drink, or to go away, and uh, I'll bet you know which one I chose. So I went back to California to uh, my great uncle. My great aunt had passed away, and I went back to his house. There wasn't any drinking going on there, so I didn't last too long. And uh, that was the 60s, and there was a lot of activity out there on the West Coast. A lot of military bases. Vietnam was gearing up, and so there were there were a lot of military people in and out, uh, flying in and out, coming in on transports and what have you. Uniforms everywhere, and booze flowing everywhere. And so I moved on to San Diego, and uh, I met whoever was next. And <laughs> that's uh, that's how it was. Uh, I was I was young. I didn't know anything at all about taking care of myself. Somebody had always taken care of me, always told me what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and how it should look. And uh, nobody ever asked me how I felt about anything because uh, how I felt didn't matter. How I looked mattered. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I've been sober a while now, and my sponsor says to me, Brenda, nobody cares how you feel. They care how you look. So, you know, I, I just, everything doesn't get different. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, I try to show up and look dignified and look acceptable. Well, back then I didn't look either one of those things. But uh, I, I did uh, remarry, and the young man that I married was on a troop transport. So he went back and forth to uh, Southeast Asia, and he would be gone for about 90 days, and then he'd come back for about uh, about a month, and, and uh, that that went on for quite some time. And uh, I did a little fifth-step work just before I came up here. Uh, you know, I've been telling my story now for almost 11 years. And uh, it's funny. It's the same story, and it's the same facts, and, and all of the same things in the past occurred. But where I'm standing looking at them today uh, is, is different than, than where it has been. And I have to tell you, during that time, I did some horrible things. I did some very, very uh, shameful things, and and they were so shameful that it's taken me a long time to get them out and a long time to discuss them. Now, I'm going to stand up here and give, do a fifth step, y'all, so don't worry. But, but what I am going to tell you is that the piece in the big book that says more will be disclosed to us, well, I believe that step work is ongoing, and more has been right along. More has been disclosed to me. When God knows that I can stand the pain, when I can look at the at the reality of things, it comes full face to me. And uh, in in the uh, light of 
recent events in our country, uh, some things came face to face with me that, that were very, very painful, and I had to own my part in some of that stuff. And all I can tell you is I do not conduct my life that way today. I do not deliberately do damage to other people. And uh, if I hurt you or do harm to you, I come to you and I try to make it right. And uh, that's the best that I can do about an amends for some things that uh, it's way too late to go back and fix with the parties that were injured. And... Uh, so I stayed married to him for about six years, and he came in and out and in and out, and uh, every time he'd come in, we'd have sort of a honeymoon for a week, and then we'd uh, go to battle for about a week, and about uh, the end of the month, it would get pretty rough, and the Navy would intercede and send him back overseas, and, and you know, you can sustain a real marriage that way. I mean, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to... Uh, you don't have to do anything definite because something something gets out of uh, gets you out of the way and and so we went on and we went on and then after a while uh he got home shore duty and what that means in simple terms for anybody that's never been in the military is that uh they come home every night they uh they want things like dinner they expect their socks to be washed and uh, uh, let me just say, wasn't much sock washing going on. <laughs> so, so I, uh, I didn't last too well after that. After after the shore duty, uh, I moved on to whoever was next. And uh, whoever was next was uh, was a, a brand new kettle of fish for me. Every time that that I did a change in my life, took. Uh, took a, a geographic, if you will, uh, I always moved into a new arena because, um, you know, why do the same old thing when you can do something new? So I met a health angel, and um, <laughs> that was something I hadn't done before. Uh, that was something that I'd never been exposed to, and uh, the way he led his life was different than, uh, than what I was accustomed to, and he introduced me to some brand new things. And, and so for uh, a few years, I did not drink very much. Uh, I became addicted to heroin and was eventually uh, incarcerated for that. And uh, I didn't know that I was just uh, treating my alcoholism with, with chemicals. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know I was alcoholic. I was a teenager. I was still a child. I look at youngsters today. You know, I went to my first AA meeting when I was 19 years old, and I was locked up in a San Diego County jail for uh, playing drunk on the street. And I look at youngsters that are 19 years old today, and some of them aren't old enough to shave. The little girls are, they're little girls. 19 years old is a child, and I was a full-blown alcoholic and living a dreadful life. And on my third whoever... And and life was moving right along pretty fast. Uh, I was locked up for two years, and uh, during that period, uh, my angel got uh, some some serious hard time uh, because that's what he did. He sold uh, he sold drugs. So he went away. When I came out, I didn't have anybody to look after me. And my dad met me at the gate, and uh, my dad 
my dad practiced until uh, until he died a few years ago. But he wasn't the kind of practicing alcoholic that I was. He was somebody who uh, stayed in trouble with himself with his drinking, but he didn't fail to meet the mortgage. He did not fail to keep food on the table. He did not fail to go to work. He did not fail to keep a family together. He didn't uh, lose his car and, and lose lose everything that was near and dear to him, and everybody in his life did not abscond. So my daddy was still a presence in my life at that time. And uh, he came, he got me, he, he met me at the gate, and he took me home. He had moved his family to California at that time, and he had uh, he had three small children, and uh, and a young wife. She wasn't much older than me, and uh, they really sincerely tried to help me. They uh, they had a few house rules, and they were terrible rules. Things like like please do not let the sun come up before you're in the door. Uh, and and his explanation for that was he didn't want to explain my behavior to my younger brother and sisters. And I thought, well, you get drunk, you know. So I, I didn't understand the reasoning behind that. I mean, after all, I was I was grown now, and and I could legally drink in a bar because I became of age while I was locked up. And uh, so I I moved on from there. I moved away from there. Uh, I my sponsor uses the term some old rag, and. Um, that's I, I like that term. My daddy brought home some old rag from the place he worked, and so me and some old rag moved on, and that was my next husband. <laughs> and, uh, bless his heart. And <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, he really is a nice man. When he got rid of me, he, his life took a took a decided upward turn. But <laughs> during the years he spent with me, he he wasn't real pleasant. He drank like I did, and that's why. I, well, the fact that he was available, willing, was probably why. But. Um, <laughs> But he drank like I did. He drank as much as I did. Maybe he even drank more than I did. And uh, and he went to work every day. And he paid the bills. And uh, when our daughter was born, he saw to her needs. And he did all the things he was supposed to do. And he drank like I did. And I couldn't function. By now, I'm uh, getting arrested for uh, drunk driving. I'm not drunk walking anymore. Now I'm drunk driving. And uh, I started wrecking cars. And um, ultimately, I, I wrecked everything I ever put a key in. If, 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 if the engine turned on, I was going to beat it up some kind of way. And uh, this gentleman was not a body and fender man, so he got tired of paying repair bills, and, uh, and he just told me he couldn't do it anymore. And uh, so we, uh, we terminated that relationship. And uh, now... I could drink like I wanted to. I did not uh, move on to whoever was next right then. I took his daughter and uh, I showed him. I left the state so he couldn't see her and went somewhere where I could really drink like I wanted to and couldn't take care of her because I couldn't stay sober. I couldn't I couldn't function. I got, uh, it was a lot more than just not being able to go to a PTA, PTA meeting. I couldn't get up and get her to school. I couldn't go to work every day. I, uh, I love what my sponsor says. 
it wasn't a matter of I didn't want to. I couldn't. If I could have not drank like that, I would have not drank. And if I had known that there was an answer, I, I could have stopped. Uh, the first AA meeting I ever went to when I was 19 in that jail, I did not hear a thing. There was a little lady about the age I am now, and she came in there every week. And uh, back in those days, you could bring donuts and coffee into the jail. And uh, you could get out of your cell and go to another uh, room. And so that was real appealing to me, uh, get to be someplace else. I always wanted to be someplace else. Wherever I was was not where it was at. I always wanted to be somewhere else because somewhere else was where it was at. So I let them escort me to the meeting, and they gave me half a cup of coffee. And I thought that was because they didn't have much coffee. I did not know. I, I did not know how sick I was. And a lot of years went by, and I didn't know how sick I was. I believed that it was all those guys. If anybody who had to put up with all those guys would have to drink to stand it. And uh, it was them. It was. It wasn't me. It was never me. It was them. And... Uh, and it was the people at at the jobs that I couldn't keep, and it was it was the people at the school, and it was it was on and on. Finally, uh, my daughter's father came and took her. He uh, he remarried, and he he came and took her home with him. Uh, I used to tell people that uh, I let her stay with him if he would behave himself because I did, have, uh, I did have custody of her. But the fact is, I couldn't take care of her. And, and if she had not gone to stay with him, I imagine that social services would have had her. Uh, I, I was non-functional by then. So she went, and her life was okay. Her daddy saw to her. And, uh, and I... Uh, Decided. I was in the restaurant business. You know, you can drink in the restaurant business. You can, uh, you can drink pretty much all the time that you work, which is a real good reason to be there. But people are nasty to you, and somebody's always saying something you don't like, and there's always those guys coming around, and they're always doing things. So I thought that if, if I changed professions, that, uh, that my life would get better. So I've had now, by this time, uh, four DUIs in California and moved to Georgia and had three there, had, uh, had another one in Alabama. And uh, so I just, you know, I had a lot of names. Remember, I changed my name kind of regular. So uh, I went and got a driver's license in one of my other names, and I went to truck driving school because I... Why are you laughing? <laughs> Some of you have thought like I do, haven't you? <laughs> so anyway, this was going to be the answer. I could, I could constantly be somewhere else where it was at. I could have this big romance with the road, and, and I could go. I could just get out there and go, and I'd meet lots of people, and when I got tired of you and, you and you didn't talk and do to suit me, I could just get in my truck and go down the road. Well, it did not work just exactly that way. I went to uh, I went to truck driving school, got my credentials, and uh, 
I, uh, I got a job for a while with a, with a young woman that had her own truck, and she was going to teach me uh, about life on the road. And it was, it was a good job, and she was a fine young woman. She was one of those people that, um, remember when they used to have, uh, have uh, those, those uh, beers, they aren't really beers, malt, I think, in those little bitty cans? Well, she was one of those kind of people at, at the end of the day, if you shut down and went to a motel, she'd have one of those little bitty cans and leave some of it and go to sleep. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen her go to sleep, and I'd had to take her glasses off. I'm, it, was, it was like I, I didn't understand that at all. And uh, so I bet you know what happened. I, uh, I would get on out, and, and I'd get drunk, and I couldn't make delivery, and I couldn't get up in the morning, and, and uh, I couldn't pull my weight. And finally, she, uh, she looked at me one day, and she said, you know, I really love you, Brandy, but you've got to go. I've got a living to make. And, uh, oh, I thought, I thought that she was just nasty. I thought she was jealous of me because I was so exemplary. And, <laughs> and whatever it was I thought... I went on my way, and I was just going to go get me another job and show her. Now I'm going to show her and him and him and them and all of them, and, you know, I'm going to show them. I'm going to do well. And uh, so I went to uh, apply for a job at a trucking company in Birmingham, Alabama, and I met a safety director. And uh, you have to understand the only, the only skills that I had in those days were the skills that moved on to whoever was next. That's all I knew. I knew how to bat my eyes. I knew how to sweet talk you. I didn't know how to tell you the truth. I didn't know how to look you in the eye. I didn't know how to ask you about you and tell you about me. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't possess the ability to do that. So uh, I met this, uh, this gentleman and batted my eyes and he liked me and he really wanted to give me a job um, whatever his agenda was but I was not qualified to work for his company it was a 48 state operation and I didn't have any West Coast uh, experience and I didn't I didn't know how to handle ports out west there were just a lot of things I hadn't done and uh, so he asked me if I'd be willing to take a training driver and I said yeah I'm I would have gone off on the road with an orangutan if, you know, by now I want the job. I, this is what I want to do. Anytime I wanted to do something, I, I didn't have any, uh, any comprehension of, of why things stood in my way. I just wanted to move them out. So, of course, I was going to do that, no questions asked. And this person that, uh, that he was going to assign to train me was due to come into Birmingham on, on that Saturday. So he told me to come down to the yard. So I spray-painted my tightest blue jeans on. And I went down there, and uh, I got out of my car, and, and I saw the director and uh, a driver standing over by a truck. And... Uh, I knew that was him. Now, he'd not been described to me. I didn't know anything about him, didn't know his truck number, didn't know what he looked like. But I saw him, and, and it was sort of an aura that left him. It was just sort of circling around his head. And yes, he was whoever was next. And, uh, and um, I knew it. I knew it well before he knew it. He didn't know it until late that afternoon. I, I knew it right then. But... Uh, 
so I went over and was introduced, and uh, we had uh, we went for coffee, and he started to explain to me what I was going to have to do to get in his truck, and uh, that was okay with me, whatever it was, and and so we uh, we loaded up and we went to California that night, and. Uh, we came back, we made a round to the East Coast and uh, and some stops along the way. We were back in about three weeks and uh, we got married. And you, you don't understand about me, do you? Uh, <laughs> see, they told me when I was a little girl that nice girls got married. So that's what I did, you know, because because somewhere inside of me, I really did want to be a nice girl. I just didn't know how. I didn't have the ability to put into practice what my instincts told me I needed to do. And, uh, you know, I was running without a game plan, and that's a scary place to be. So uh, I married this person, and... He turned out to be a real piece of work. Uh, now, all the rest of the folks that, that I uh, aligned my life with, including the Hells Angel, were, were not abusive to me. They did not mistreat me. They, uh, they took care of me. They saw too well to my needs, such as they were. And uh, they, they were pretty decent old boys. They, you know, they obviously got with the wrong woman, but, but they, they weren't all that bad. Now, this individual, you know, the book talks about us seeking lower companions. I found mine. All, uh, all the rest of my uh, liaisons lasted four or five years, max. Uh, this one lasted 15 years, and, uh, and it almost killed me. And I didn't know I could leave. See, I have all these isms, and all I did with them was I drank and I hid. I drank and I hid between my ears. And if, if I would do this, it would be okay. If this would be this way, it would be okay. If, if, if. And a lot of really, really scary things went on. This person was more than just a truck driver. He was a career criminal. And he was wanted in a lot of places. He had done just about everything to everybody. And uh, he had done a lot of harm. He's in federal prison now. And uh, that is a real good place for him. But before that took place, uh, we went on a real merry chase. We'd been married a couple of years when, uh, when our little boy was born, and we kept him on the road, on, on the truck with us, hauled him up and down the road until it, he didn't go to kindergarten, until it was time for him to go to first grade. So he, uh, he had a strange beginning for his life. Uh, my husband was very, very physically abusive. Uh, he hated drinking. He didn't drink at all. And, and that was one of the things that really, really was attractive to me in, in the, those early moments uh, when we were, you know, spending that three weeks finding out about each other. I thought, here's somebody that can probably stop me from drinking. Because did I mention he was the biggest, ugliest, meanest looking man I ever saw? And, uh, and he was scary. And he, he had an, uh, a presence about him, 
Uh, you know a person who, who, if they don't get their way, they take it. You've been in society with people like that. And, and he was, and I perceived that he could make me stop drinking. See, I didn't, I didn't know I had alcoholism. I didn't understand. And he did try. He sure did. He tried to beat it out of me. He tried to squeeze it out of me. He tried to do everything he could to, uh, to stop me. Any time that I would be off the truck and stay at home, I would get drunk. And any time I would get drunk, I would uh, wreck something, wreck a vehicle. There was one time our little boy was about two years old, and I had been home a few days, and I left him at a child care center and, of course, went out and got drunk, and I was running late to go pick him up, and uh, I was making a left turn and didn't complete it and hit a pole. But when I hit the pole, I took out the passenger side of the car. It was completely, completely uh, totaled. I don't know if that daycare center would have given my child to me if I had gotten there safely. But if I had gotten him before the accident, he wouldn't be alive today. I didn't stop drinking, and I didn't know that I placed my life and others at risk. I just thought this was just something that happened. I got in too big a hurry. You know, it was just, it was just something that happened. I had a lot of accidents like that. I, just something that happened. Just somebody got in the way. Just it just didn't go quite the way I meant for it to. My intentions were always good, and uh, it just didn't work out. Uh, once I stayed home and uh, did my drinking at my house because now I have no driver's license. And I have no car because I wrecked it. And uh, Larry went to the West Coast, and he wasn't supposed to be back for a week, and he came back unexpectedly. I was in my home, and my child was in the in his room asleep. It was it was evening, it was dark, and I was in my room. I was I was drunk, but there was nothing going on. There was no other people. There was no noise. There was no disarray. There was absolutely no problem except that that I'd been drinking. And of course, you enter. Establishment, a house, whatever, a domicile, where somebody's been drinking and you haven't, you know it. And um, he came in and the violence broke out and he was he was enraged. And I never had sense enough to keep my mouth shut. I never knew how to to just just leave it alone and and maybe it would be all right. If if there was a problem, you could guarantee that I was going to make it worse. And so well, I started to rage and and rattle and and run my mouth, and uh, it got real, real ugly, and uh, and he hurt me real bad. Uh, he left. He left me there, and uh, I was not conscious. And, uh, and he did come back. I don't know how long I was there like that, but I had lost quite a bit of blood. And when he came back, I, I'm sure he came back because he was afraid maybe with the neighbors hearing the, uh, the fighting that... Uh, he might get prosecuted for murder. So he, he came back, he took me to the emergency room, but when he took me, he told those people that I had gotten into a bar fight and called him and he came and got me. And he was sober and I was drunk and they believed him. And I always try to share that when I share my story because, you know, it doesn't matter if we're wrong or right. Now, I wasn't doing anything illegal. Uh, 
I wasn't doing anything harmful to anybody. But we don't have any credibility when we're drinking. And, and you know, I know people that, that don't get in the kind of trouble, uh, the kind of radical activity that I got into, but they still have no credibility when they're drinking. It, alcoholism robs us of all our credibility. So the people at the hospital believed him. They signed me in there. He went away, got in his truck and left the state. And uh, it was several days before anybody believed what, what had actually happened, believed what I was telling them. And by then, of course, he was safely somewhere else. Uh, I didn't stop drinking. I stayed in the hospital a while. And... Uh, I was released. When I got out, I had staples in me. I had somebody else's blood in my veins. And I went right back out and drank again. And uh, that's, that's the scary insidiousness of alcoholism. I did not know that it was the drinking that did that to me. I thought it was him. He was a bad guy. He is a bad guy. There's, there's no question about that. But that's not what got me in trouble. Bad guys didn't get me in trouble. My alcoholism got me in trouble. Every bad choice I ever made was based in my alcoholism, was based on making decisions based on self, which put me in a position to be hurt. Every time that I was ever hurt, that was the truth for me. When I got here and people started reading me the big book, and I have to tell you it was so rummy when I got here that I couldn't read it, but there were people around that would tell me what it said, read it to me, and explain it to me. And, and they started telling me things like that, little pieces like that. And I thought, that fits. That's the truth about me. Uh, they used phrases like... Uh, like incomprehensible demoralization, and that fit me, and that fit my life. So I knew when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous that I was in the right place. Uh, I went out one last time by myself, thank God, and I drove my car off a cliff. I was in North Little Rock, and I drove my car off a cliff and down the bank of the Arkansas River, and uh, that's a transportation river, and it's very, very deep. They float barges down it. It's so very deep from the bank. And if my car had gone into that river, I would have been gone. Going down the bank, uh, the doors got bent up. It had electric windows and electric, electric door locks, and I couldn't get out of the car. It was kind of pinned in there. And uh, it hung on something, an old tree trunk or, or something down there by the bank, but it was rocking. I remember being airborne. I do not remember coming to, uh, to uh, stillness. But when I came to, I was looking in that black inky water, and the car was rocking back and forth, kind of slanted downward, and I was terrified. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so amazing to me what it takes to, uh, to get me where I'm willing to make any kind of, of surrender, any kind of concession to, uh, to something outside myself. Uh, the idea that, that my children were scattered out all over the place, that I could have easily uh, cost their lives, 
innocent people's lives, all the damage, all the havoc, none of that ever got through to me. None of it ever changed my thinking. But now I'm down here and I think I'm going to maybe drown in this water. And I'm real scared and I made this bargain with God. And it was the first one I ever made in my life. And I, and I prayed really sincerely, I will not drink if, if you will just let me live. Please just let me live. And uh, somebody must have heard me go over the cliff and uh, they got rescue people down there and got me to the hospital and patched me up, got me to jail, the whole, you know, the whole gamut of, of things that, that I was used to that. I'd, I'd already done an awful lot of that, so that was old hat to me. It was no longer frightening. And I didn't drink. And that was in December of 1985. I did not drink, but I did not come to AA. I had been in AA, I told you. I went to one meeting in the jail. And then a few years later, in the early 70s, from wrecking a lot of cars, I was court-ordered to AA out in, uh, in uh, West Los Angeles, in the Venice area. And I had to go to 90 meetings. And so I had, I don't know, I think six months to do it. And I came down to the wire, right right down to the end, and I was having to go to three meetings a day because I had not done what I was supposed to do. But I made those meetings. I made, I made them and got my paper signed. And uh, I, I didn't hear anything. Uh, I, when I finally got to you folks in 1990, I did not know that, that they'd always read how it works in the meeting. In fact, I was here not maybe 90 days before I knew that they were reading the same thing in every meeting I went to. That's, I, mean, I, was, I was pretty out there. But I do remember one, uh, one particular incident out there in, uh, in Venice. Uh, there's a little club, and they have little couches around the window, or around, the, around the wall, and they stand up at a podium like this when they share. They don't share from their seats. And this really beautiful young girl got up, and maybe she was 20, and uh, she went to the podium, and she was crying. And she had blue eyes about as big as saucers. And, and uh, she looked around the room, and, and, and she had tears, and she said, I can't do this by myself. I need some help with this. And that's all she said. And I sat there in the corner, and, uh, and I was probably impaired. I, I went to a lot of meetings drinking. And I looked around at the faces of all the men in the room, and I thought, now there's an angle. I'll bet that'll work for her. That's exactly what I heard. That was all I had heard when I finally got here in 1990. I never heard the message. People been trying to give me the message for years, and I didn't hear it. Um, I didn't drink for that five years. I went to church. And thank God for the good people of the church because they kept me physically alive until I could get to you. I stayed married to this lunatic man and uh, we moved all over the country, of course, because he was always running from the, from the law and that worked for me. And so I went to see a lot of doctors. Every time that he'd twist my arm, sprain my ankle, choke me a little, bat me upside the head, I'd have to go see a doctor. And I'll bet you know what the doctor gave me. And that sustained my alcoholism for a while until I could get to you. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I did not know. But I have a disease that demands treatment. And if I do not have the state of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life, then I'm going to have to drink 
or do something to ease my pain. And that's what I did in those days. I did something to ease my pain. When I crawled in in 1990, I was a disaster. I was so pathetic. I cried all the time. We have a lady in uh, in our circle that's sober uh, nearly 20 years, and uh, she'll work with anybody. She'll work with anybody. And, and she, she laughs when she talks about me, and she says, I was afraid to talk to that one. I was afraid she'd off herself. And that was how bad it was. I was, I was just at the end of my rope. I, I wasn't uh, coherent. I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't put words together. I couldn't, I couldn't put uh, sentences together. I couldn't have a conversation was, was not even at issue. Uh, the ladies in, uh, in the circle that I live in right now are the same ladies that caught me with their open arms when I came through the door. My sponsor is now 43 years sober, and uh, she spends as much time with newcomers as I guess she did when she got here. Certainly she does spend as much time with them as she did 11 years ago. She's an exciting, exciting lady, and she taught me a lot of things. She taught me that uh, if you can't get five letters in a word, don't use it. She taught me that she, she taught me to show up at a meeting with all my body parts inside my clothes. I did not know. Uh, one of my sponsees drove me up here. I, uh, I got hurt a couple years ago, and I can't drive too long. And so God has put people in my life that, that God bless them, that, that are so loving and so generous of their time and their, and their efforts. And uh, we were laughing up in the room when we, were, when we were ironing our clothes and getting ready to come down here about dressing appropriately and the fact that if we could have afforded to dress appropriately before we got here, we wouldn't have wanted to dress like this anyway. <laughs> Why would we want to look like this? Nobody would want to do that. You know, it's, it's a, amazing the changes that take place outside as we change from the inside. And this is an inside job. It is an absolutely inside job. What I learned from watching the ladies was if I be quiet, and I just go along and see what they're doing, see what they were doing, was they were putting the principles of our program into practice on a daily basis. And I got to sit in the back seat of the car, and they act like they didn't even know I was crying. They, they didn't care. Mary says to me, she says, Brenda, I don't care where you want to go, get in the car. Nobody asked you where you want to go. What do you mean, where are we going? <laughs> Nobody cares whether you like it. Just do it. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I did. And, and that's what I believe works. Somebody had to show me. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know what, what would be good for me. But I saw the people have lives. I saw them laughing. Now, what they were doing was they were talking about some of these things that, that I've stood up here and talked about tonight. And they were laughing like we've been. And I didn't understand that. The two were incongruent to me. I absolutely could not see how anybody 
could could laugh about the horror that they had done and the horror that they had been and and find it humorous. It didn't work. Well, it works now because it helps other people. It helps other people know that they belong here. It helped me know that I fit here, that it was okay, that I was accepted. And, uh, you know, I was accepted here long before I learned to behave acceptably. I'm real grateful to you all for that because I would not have stayed alive to learn to behave acceptably if you hadn't accepted me in the beginning. They took me everywhere and they taught me what I needed to do. They taught me this is what we did and this is what we got. That's what our book says. This is the steps we took and applied to our lives, our lives changed. I always knew I was powerless over alcohol. Always knew that. I, I knew that I was powerless over alcohol when it was in me, that once I started drinking, something outside of me always had to stop me, whether I ran out of money, I got arrested, I, somebody beat me up, I passed out, something else always had to stop me. When I was 19 years old, I was going to sleep with a bottle beside the bed because I couldn't get up any other way. It was not an abrupt thing that I crossed the line one day. I started out alcoholic. My sponsor uses a phrase, and, and, and I think this is true for me. If I was not born an alcoholic when I first took my first drink, an alcoholic was born. And now I think that's true for me. Uh, I don't know that that's true for everybody else, but in my case it is. Uh, my life, had I, I never had a life. So manageability was was not even something I had an understanding of. I didn't know what man manageability was, but I knew that these people had had like been married to the same person for a lifetime, had lived in the same house, had had kept their power and their and their water on all the time, had got to keep the same phone number. They did not have to keep changing names all the time to get a driver's license. You know. They were not having to leave jobs by the back door to keep from getting fired. Those were things that, that represented manageability to me. And I wanted some of that, and I didn't know how to get it. And, uh, and I needed some rest. And, and that's an absolute fact. When I got here, I really didn't think this was going to work for me. I thought I was different. I thought my case was different. In the first place, you people drank. And I hadn't drank in five years, so that couldn't be my problem. The drinking must not be my problem. But if I'll just be quiet about that, maybe let me stay. Well, I didn't know about alcoholism. I didn't know that I was sicker without a drink than I was with one. I had no idea. I had to stay here and clear up enough to get the information. Thank God for the information that tells us about our disease. I... Uh, always believed in God, I was not convinced that God believed in me. So I had to, well, I had to get to a place where I stopped feeling like I had to run everything, feeling like 
I was the only power that was going to work in my life because God was done with me. My God's a lot bigger today than he was when I got here. And uh, he's big enough to handle this, too, in the end. Um, I, turning my will and my life over to the care of God, as I understand him. You know, that's kind of funny. I had been turning my will and my life over to the care of the San Diego Sheriff's Department, to any anybody who would take it, to this guy and that guy, and and you know the the bootlegger. It didn't matter. I anybody that would take responsibility for me could have it. So when they told me that I needed to trust God and make an attempt make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. Well, what that was explained to me as was exactly as I felt when I came into the room and I looked inappropriate and I spoke inappropriately and I didn't know how to behave. I wanted to look like you and I wanted to act like you. I wanted to be able to go sit down at the dinner table with nice people and know what fork to use. But I just didn't know. I didn't know how to suit up and show up and be allowed to be present. But I made a decision to find out. Well, that's what the third step is for me. I made a decision to find out how to do that. And the rest of the steps on a daily basis have shown me how to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. I continuously do take inventory. I, uh, I did a fourth step the very best I could in those early days. Uh, as, as, as sincerely, as fearlessly, and thoroughly as I was capable of doing it. And I'm real glad to know that it's okay to do it again because there was just a lot of where I was standing looking at things that is vastly different today. Uh, I believe in sharing before God and one other human being everything. Now that doesn't mean that I go run screaming into the streets with my dirty laundry. But I, I'm not one of these people that calls up my sponsor and reports to her what I've done and the decisions I've made. Uh, I still use my sponsor. I still talk things over with her. I still want to know where she's standing looking at it, how does it look. That doesn't mean that I need somebody to tell me when to brush my teeth and, and take a bath. It means that it is of value to talk things over with another person. Our literature says that, uh, that highly developed spiritual people do that. The Pope does it. Billy Graham does it. I, you know, people with good sense look for an outside point of view to what they're doing. That did not make sense to me in my prior life. Today it does not make sense to me not to do it. Uh, and as far as uh, being relieved of my defects, I, uh, I believe that it's ongoing and I... I believe they get better. I don't think they all go away. I, mine haven't all gone away. I, if any of you are absent of defect, please drop by and tell me how you did that. But it gets so much better. It's such a process. And 
and everything in life improves as I get willing to allow God in and allow my ego out just a little bit, just a little bit. I don't. I, I think self-centeredness is is like the human condition. I don't think it's an alcoholic condition necessarily. I mean, if you've ever been closed up in a room with a with a brand new baby, they come in the world pretty self-centered. Everything's about them. So everything being about me was not unique. But to live a spiritual life, I have to be willing to move a little tiny baby step out of that self-centeredness, just a little step at a time. Just move over and let a little God in, let a little you in. And, uh, you know, God really does enter my life through you. I can't see or touch God. I don't get a, a fax from God. But I can feel your hugs and I can hear your words and I can look in your eyes can see the lives you lead. I can watch you helping other people and, and experiencing joy from it. And I know that's God working. I can, I can touch another human being and offer them what happened to me and what it got me and why I would or wouldn't do it that way again. And, you know, I get some real relief that way, trying to help another woman maybe not have to go as far as I did, maybe not have to do some of the things that I did. So I uh, I get a little spiritual growth as, as I move along. Uh, I didn't get a huge amount of relief in my initial fifth step. Relief for me started when I started making those ninth step amends. When I started trying to make things right. And in, in my life, that's been real interesting. Uh, it's real easy to pay back the money. You know, the, the lawyers and the bankers and the, and the creditors are easy. All we've got to do is we've got to go to work regular and we've got to write the check. That's, that's the deal. And a little bit at a time, that stuff gets together. The material life comes together. But uh, the lives that we so damaged, the, the people that I robbed of relationship with me, my mother, my my brothers and my sisters, my uh, friends, uh, and all those poor people that, that married me with hope in, in, in their hearts. And some of them actually had some. Uh, God bless them. Uh, and, and he has. Uh, it's hard to do anything about that except live better, living better amends. My mother passed away on the uh, on the 1st of August. By the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not welcome at my mother's breakfast table. And uh, when my mother was dying, I got to nurse her. I got to care for her with my hands. And uh, the sweetest thing that I have ever seen in my life over and over and over in my years in recovery as I had left my mother's home after a visit, her standing on the front porch blowing kisses to me and waving. My mother was proud of me and when she talked to her friends and her family about her daughter, she straightened up and she talked about what Brenda's doing, the people that, that are in Brenda's life, when my friends in AA would go to Mother's home with me to visit her. 
she was so grateful to them because you all gave me a life. Now, those are the kind of amends that you just don't write a check for. One day at a time, we get to walk through life with other human beings and repair the damage we've done by not making a new mess and by being kind and being decent and being respectful and being respectable. That's all they ever wanted from us. Those people that loved us all our lives, that's all they ever wanted from us was to see us do well. So I went by and I let my people see me do well as long as they were here. And I go by and I let my brothers and my sisters see me do well. And uh, that has done a lot of healing in, in my life. When uh, when I make a mistake, when I when I do damage to somebody, when I when I hurt someone, and I do, we all do. We all say or do things without thinking, and I'll put my mouth in gear before my brain wakes up. But I have a step to handle that, and it is important to me that you know that I'm genuinely sorry. Now, whether or not you have forgiveness in you when I'm sorry, is that's between you and God. But it is very important to me, if I have harmed you, that you know that I did not intend harm, and I'm real sorry that I did that. And uh, because I conduct my life that way today, you know, I haven't got any piles of garbage in it anymore. It's a pretty clean place to live. It's a, it's a pretty decent place to live. I used to be eat up with fear when I first got here and the women would talk about waking up and and gripping the side of the bed with that feeling of impending doom, not knowing what it was but just being afraid. Boy, did I relate to that. I Loud and clear, I could, I could hear that because I lived my life like that. I didn't know what I was afraid of, but I couldn't answer the door, couldn't answer the phone, couldn't go out in public, couldn't sit down in your company, knew that if, if you were standing over there against the wall, you were talking about me or at least thinking something bad about me. Uh, I don't have all those fears anymore. I, uh, I get them. They crop up. Little, little pieces of them crop up. And I have a God that can handle that. And I take it to him, and I ask for relief, and I get it. Just like I asked for relief from the compulsion to drink. We've got promises here, and they really, really are a fact. I didn't drink, and I went to meetings, and I tried to help other people in any way that I could. Early on, all I could do was give people a ride. You know, if they told me, you got a car, give them a ride. I certainly didn't have any recovery to offer them, but I could take them where it was. I could bring them to you, and you could tell them what happened to you. Anything that I could do to be of service, uh, that's gotten bigger and bigger. My life has gotten bigger and branched out, and, and uh, so there's more things to do. There's always more things for us to do if we come with a willing heart and an open mind. And the way I know what the next right thing is for me is not because, uh, you know, I, I get a note on my pillow. It's because it's right here. If it's right in my face, I know that's what God wants me to be doing. Otherwise, I don't know. You know, I knew that I was supposed to come here because Jay called me and asked me. And uh, so that, that indicated to me that uh, if, if I wasn't uh, tied up and committed for that date, that that's where I should be. And, God, I'm so honored to be here with you. 
It, it is a real honor to be standing in any AA meeting anywhere and be allowed to share and try to offer a little of myself to to other recovering people. And not, please know I love you. I I love all of you. I'm grateful to you for my life. My uh, my spiritual life, my spiritual condition, my spiritual connection improves with time. I'm not real good at meditation. Uh, I pray and and I get quiet. And I perceive that a quiet mind is an incredible gift from God. And maybe that's the best it'll ever get for me. It's just moments of a quiet mind. But that's about as uh, as deep into meditation as I can get. Uh, if I'm not thinking about me, that's real spiritual, believe me. Uh, our 12th step says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, I, uh, I believe that we must practice the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in our lives ongoing. We don't come in here. You know, I hear people all the time talk about, when I did my steps, when I took my steps, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a practice of living. And if practiced, provide us with a way of life that's second to none. There isn't anything like this. There isn't anybody that's got anything like this. We have got the best deal in the world. I don't know anybody in recovery whose life is not getting better. Now, that doesn't mean that things are always hunky-dory. And Mary Shaw told me that I absolutely had to tell you that everything in my life is not perfect. And, and not to stand up here and sound like a Pollyanna. Because things still happen. Certainly things still happen. People live and die and get divorced and break your heart and and you lose jobs and companies fold up and terrorists attack and things happen. But I am spiritually in a better place than I've ever been in my life. I am not terrified of my own shadow. I'm not terrified of you. I'm able to walk with dignity and live in the world today. And when somebody anywhere asks for help and I have any ability to help them, I I consider that my responsibility. I really appreciate you all having me here tonight. I am just, just awed and so grateful to be here. Thank you very much.